It's our day. It's here. Easter. I've been giving you a virus thought. Here's my virus thought for today. I feel like I'm 17. Gas is cheap and I'm grounded. Over and over, we, we just want to keep restating. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? We got to keep restating. At least we have the technology. We can be in the Word. I got to tell you, Easter, I know, I know, I know. We all miss being together today, but we're going to be in the Word. I was thinking about this, this whole virus. We really feel it today because it's Easter. I know. What a life change. But I, I had a thought. Do you think God's doing something even with this virus? Is he using this? He didn't send the virus. He never is the author of the bad attacks, but he has a way of using them. Is he using it to awaken America? Is he bringing us back to a spiritual reality? Remember Jacob? What, what a wheeler, dealer, kind of a sleazy guy Jacob was. And then what a great man he was. God wrestled with Jacob, and Jacob had to be broken before he was surrendered. I, I don't know. Are we being broken so that we might really surrender as a nation? Is, is God doing something here? He didn't bring the virus. I don't even want to give that thought. But he has a way of taking bad and using something good out of it. So if, if he's using this virus to awaken our nation, how do we partner with him to heal a spiritually defeated nation? A lot of us have been self-sufficient, depending on our economy, strength of our country, which was real. That's been stripped away. On the good side, haven't you seen our nation kind of bond together, trying to fight this virus together? Is God doing something? Is he calling us back to him? I, I think maybe the answer is yes. But, come on. It's Easter and we're not here in the building. We're living in kind of a valley. There's a lot of discouragement for some, it's a dark valley. A lot of people's employment has changed. A lot of people's employment are gone. Some's coming back, some may not. People live paycheck to paycheck, truly in a dark valley. In real life, I've really been teaching in series. The Christian home, Christian family, names of God, feasts of the Old Testament. Next Sunday, I want to teach a standalone message, not part of a series, but it's been led on my heart. I think it's something we need right now. God's answers to dark valleys. If you're living in a dark valley, I think a lot of us are, come on. Next Sunday, April 19th, you want to make sure that you are in front of your computer watching God's answer to dark valleys. After that, we're going to go right back into a series. April 26th, kick off an important series. I think important right now. I'm calling it the battle. You're in a battle. You say, I'm not a follower of Christ. You're in a battle. I am a follower of Christ. You're in a battle. Whether you've rejected Christ or you're a disciple, you're in a battle. You're a participant. There's an invisible front lines of this battle. Spiritual warfare is going on all the time for every single person, particularly now in the valley. We've got to be certain we understand. Bible teaches a lot on spiritual warfare, what the front lines really are. The problem is a lot of people have bought into things that aren't biblical. They aren't true. Let's define biblically the battlefield, that you might understand it. We might grow from it. So beginning next Sunday, God's Answers for Dark Valleys, a standalone sermon. After that, April 26th, we're going to launch right into a very important series, The Battle, because you're on the front lines, whether you acknowledge it, whether you like it, you're on the front lines. I think the next few weeks here at Real Life are going to be very 
relevant, pertinent, important to what we're living. Okay, Easter, talk about important. Let's move on to what's really, really valuable. Easter, a risen Savior. The title today is 10 who ran and one who didn't. Let's get into the word. Luke 24. If you've been following along as we've been teaching a lot on the core values, we've done a lot out of Luke. Luke's a physician. Luke's an articulate, educated guy. I love this guy. Luke 24, the first eight verses. I'm going to join every other pastor in America who's probably reading the same passage today. Let's us get into it. Luke 24, 1 to 8. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the sepulcher. They brought spices they had prepared and others with them. They found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. They entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It came to pass. They were perplexed. Behold, two men stood stood by them in shining garments. They were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee? He said, The Son of Man will be delivered to the hands of sinful men and then be crucified. On the third day he will rise again. And then they remembered his words. At the arrest, let's go back a few days. Gethsemane. The disciples ran, hid, scattered, terrified. Will I be next? There's something striking to me that one by one, after they ran and hid, one by one they gravitated back to the upper room. I bet they were pleased they weren't the only one there, but one by one they go back to this room. I mean, they had to be embarrassed gawking at each other that Resurrection Sunday. At least they had to feel foolish. Only a couple nights ago at the arrest, they scattered, terrified. It's like someone threw hot water on a batch of rats. Gone. And they didn't stop running until they ducked into every hole in Jerusalem. You ever, you ever wonder, what did the disciples do that weekend? From the arrest of Sunday morning, where'd they go? Scripture doesn't tell us what they do. Did they walk the streets? Did they think about going home? What happened when somebody recognized them and said, hey, what happened? Well, uh, 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 it went this way, see? Uh, what do you say? Did, did they stay in pairs where they had small groups or all by themselves, just in their thoughts? What did they think? What did they feel? What could they really tell anyone? We had to run. The guards would have killed us all. I don't understand what happened. I let Jesus down. He should have warned us. There they were, coming back one by one. But where were they that weekend? Where were they all those days? Where were they when Jesus hung on the cross? When the sky turned black, where were those guys? When the earthquake happened, what'd they think? Were they near the temple when the veil of the Holy of Holies was ripped in two? Where were those guys? Did they have the courage to sneak on a hillside far away and stare at the silhouettes of three crosses? We don't know. It's one of those things, there's no detailing, there's no records of what those guys did in those couple of days. We're left to speculate. Any fear, any guilt, any doubts, unrecorded. One thing we know, they came back. That part, we got one by one, we have them back in the upper room. 
out of the shadows, out of the hiding. Maybe they were flooded with shame. For ever, whatever reason, one by one, we know these guys came back. Were they, were they relieved to see others there? From all sections of the city, they reappeared. Too convicted to go home, too confused to go on. They went back to the upper room. Maybe Jesus' words brought them together. Back to that room. What an awkward position. They're caught between failure and forgiveness. That's hard ground, isn't it? Between failure and forgiveness. Too ashamed to ask for forgiveness. Too loyal to give up. I suspect we've been there. I've been there. Between failure and forgiveness. That's hard ground. You've walked those streets. Me too. I've walked the street between failure and forgiveness. So, so why'd they come back? What, what made him return? Was it, was it rumors of resurrection? That maybe. After all, those who had walked close to Jesus, didn't they come to expect the unexpected? He forgave a woman who got, who'd burned through five husbands. He'd forgiven a pint-sized thief. He healed lepers. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Traditions trembled. What was it, rumors of an empty tomb? They should expect the unexpected. Was there something that made them not live with betrayal? They just couldn't move on? Excuses could only go so far. They ran. They felt like they betrayed Jesus and they couldn't walk away from it. In their eyes, Jesus needed them and they were gone. There were no excuses. They wanted forgiveness and all they had was their shame. That's tough ground between failure and forgiveness. So we gravitate to the upper room. Memories of bread and wine and the Last Supper. I don't know. Leadership. There's something in the fact about their leader Jesus that those who know him best couldn't stand to be in disfavor. So there they sit. I think little conversation happened between them. They're still in their thoughts. There's a shuffling of feet, deep sighs, pretty quiet room. It's a gloomy state between failure and forgiveness. It's a gloomy scene between failure and forgiveness. No funeral home was ever so sad with emotion. What a batch of guys, what a group. Look at, look at some of those who ran. There's Thomas. Yeah, we've branded Thomas, haven't we? We never call him Thomas, do we? It's Doubting Thomas. That nickname stuck. Well, Gene, he did doubt. Was it doubting? Or did he just not have imagination? For instance, you ever look at some of Thomas' quotes? This guy does not have imagination. Jesus says, I'm going to home. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Thomas, no imagination. Jesus says, you know the way I'm going. Thomas blurts out, recorded in John 14, 5. Look at this. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Thomas speaks his heart. If he doesn't understand something, he says so. His, his imagination doesn't go real far. Jesus is on his way to Lazarus. Lazarus has died. We know what's going to happen. And he tells his disciples, I'm going to go where Lazarus is. Well, Lazarus is dead. Thomas is thinking, you're going to go join Lazarus in death? 
I love you so much, I'll die with you. That's what's going on when John chapter 11, verse 16. Then Thomas, the man called Didymus, said to the other followers, let us also go that we might die with him. A lot of loyalty, no imagination. It's interesting. At the time of the shuffling feet, disciples come back one by one. Guess who the last guy to arrive is? Doubting Thomas. He's not there when the room came to life. He's not there when the room went from death to life. Jesus appears in the room. And frustration now goes to awe. We go from a funeral room to a birthing room. Thomas isn't there yet. Of course he'd heard rumors. But with no imagination, he doesn't get it. He arrives and they say, Thomas, you're late. You're the last guy here. Jesus is alive. I'm telling you, he's alive. He was here. And look what Thomas, remember, this is not a guy loaded with imagination. A lot of loyalty. John 20, 25. The other followers kept, kept telling Thomas, we saw the Lord. But Thomas said, I will not believe until I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into a side. He's loyal, but he doesn't have a lot of imagination. And so we stick it to Thomas. We brand him. He's a doubter. I think we ought to back off because we are too. In our world of budgets, long-range plans, do we have trouble trusting the unbelievable? Do we tend to scrutinize everything spiritually with cautious steps? We can't believe God might surprise us. Is there any room for a miracle today, or is that just not sound thinking? Our, our puny imagination is there hope that the impossible might occur? Our biggest problem, our spiritual dreams get elbowed out by our, confirming, by our confining logic. Not too fast here. Our spiritual dreams get elbowed out by our confining logic. Don't judge Thomas too harshly here. He's us. Come on, come on. Thomas merely asks for proof. Jesus, ever patient, gives him exactly what he wants. And Thomas is blown away. He does, he, he does a double take. He falls on his knees. After Thomas says, I got to feel it all. I got to see it all. Jesus appears. John 20, 27, 28, just a few verses later. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand here in my side. Don't need to be an unbeliever, but now believe. Thomas said, my God and my Lord. You know, I bet Jesus smiled. He knew he had a winner in Thomas. You mix that loyalty and now a little bit of imagine, imagination. You got a man of God. Tradition holds that Thomas was eventually martyred in India. They had to kill this guy to stop him from talking about the wounds that he'd inspected. Another famous story, a guy who ran, Peter, we all know about Peter. Deny, deny, deny. But there's a love verse I need, you need to understand. Mark 16, 7. Jesus has arisen. You ever notice the order here? Mark 16, 7. Now go. Tell his followers and Peter. Jesus is going to Galilee ahead of you and you will see him there as he told you before. Odd. Tell his followers and Peter. 
Does that strike you as odd? That'd be like saying, tell the Nazarene pastors in Northwest Indiana and Gene Tanner. If you tell the pastors in Northwest Indiana, don't I get the word? Why is he singled out? Tell the followers and Peter. What they're really saying is, tell the followers, especially Peter. Talk about grace. All of heaven saw this guy deny three times. All of heaven saw this guy fall three times. Now all of heaven's going to make sure we pick this guy up. Be sure and tell Peter he gets another shot at bat. Be sure and tell Peter he's not left out. Be sure and tell Peter one failure is not a flop. He doesn't need to live between failure and forgiveness. Do you ever get a second chance? Ask Peter. Because Jesus lives. The old-time evangelist Billy Sunday had a great line about Peter. One moment he's lower than a snake's belly. The next he's head hog at the trough. Classy? I don't know, but it's true, isn't it? Be sure and tell Peter he gets to bat again. You ever wonder what caused Peter to be crucified upside down? If tradition holds, he was actually crucified upside down. Where did that come from? Well, now maybe you know. Jesus, the giver of creativity and miracles. Jesus, the giver of second chances, is alive. Conquer death. Ten who ran. Remember the title? Ten who ran and one didn't. Who didn't run? John. The beloved John didn't run. John is a clear guy. John is a simple guy. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. John doesn't live complicated. There's no gray interpretations. Example here. Theologians tell brand new believers, if you're going to start out reading the Bible, maybe not knowing very little, a good place to start is John. Because he's so clear cut. Jesus is the word. Simple. Nothing complicated here. That's John. John again. If you are living in light, you have forsaken the darkness. If you are living in darkness, you have forsaken light. Straightforward. How, how clear, how simple. That's John. Why in the world did Jesus come in the first place? First verse you probably ever heard, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Clear, simple. That's John. John makes a decision. There's no gray area. John made a decision. Stick with Jesus. If everybody else runs, fine. I'm with Jesus. So, a clear decision. Stay. Maybe it shouldn't be so shocking that even though everybody else ran, John, who has no gray area, who sees everything clear, black and white, he's the one guy that stays. Maybe that's why even on the cross, Jesus says to John, you take care of Mary. John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. He entrusts Mary to John. Why not? John shows us the strongest relationship with Jesus isn't complicated. We complicate this thing. Why? The greatest stories of us and Jesus are not deep theologies. They're friendship. They're stubborn love. They're selflessness. They're joyful. Jesus is alive. Simple. Simple, simple, simple. Don't complicate this because a dead guy can't save me. A dead guy can't help me. You want to know about miracles? Ask Thomas. You want to know about second chances? Ask Peter. You want to know about simple friendship and the bond of who we are? Ask John. Easter is hope. For Jesus is alive. They went to the sepulcher and the tomb was rolled away. For you. 
for you. He prays for you. If you're serving him this morning on this glorious day of Easter, praise him. Enjoy your praise. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Enjoy your praise. A risen Savior has changed your life. Because a dead guy can't. We don't worship a martyr. If you're not serving him this morning, may I challenge you. Make your life count. May I challenge you. Invite you. There is a Jesus who prays for you. He rose from the dead for you. Augustine had a great statement. If I was the only person in all of time and eternity that needed Jesus to go to the cross, he still would have went. He went for the masses. Absolutely, he went for you. If you were the only person, he still would have gone to the cross for you. I invite you to come to the one who's alive and merely say, change my life too. He's the one of the miracles. He's the one of second chances. He's the one we bond with in simplicity of love. Father, we praise you today because I cannot go to a martyr. I go to a risen Savior. And the Lamb is alive. John, in his revelation, when he had a peek at the future and a peek in the heavens, said, I saw the Lamb of God, Jesus, alive on his throne. John, in his writings, makes things so simple, and so we want to make them so simple. No gray area. Jesus is alive. End of story. And you changed my life. And you love others so much. You love us so much that you will change any life. May we sense your presence. May we sense your peace. Bring us back next week as we study your answer to dark valleys. But today, may we do nothing but just celebrate. I serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. Amen. Amen.